2023. Yes, indeed. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress to become a patron today. But you can help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're picking this up on one of our podcasts, make sure you leave us that five-star review. Give us some comments. Let other people know why you love the show. It helps other people get back to us. Yes, the algorithm rules our lives, folks, despite what Elon wants to try to... I'm just not going to go there. For more PA Progressive Talk, talk to, um, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you not al- haven't already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor in chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by. Yours truly. Twice a month, the signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the show at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. And we just recorded another episode this afternoon, and it's freaking awesome. I can't wait for you to hear it. And attention all you gamers out there, the Game Inn is a black is a Quaker Town-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything for Retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, literally, I kid you not. And kids get discounts when they get A's in their report cards. You can't beat it. Check out them on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at the Game Inn. That's again, that's a two ends. Got a question about a game? Look for something hard to get. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two ends, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And we can't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Now, everybody, we're going to be off next week, but we got a great show for you when we come back. On Monday, March 20th at 7 p.m., I welcome Alan Gratz to the show. <laughs> My daughter's a huge fan. Gratz is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 19 novels and graphic novels for young readers, including Two Degrees, Captain America, The Ghost Army, Ground Zero, Refugee, Allies, Prisoner B3087, and Ban This Book. Now, last month, the Kutztown Area School District canceled their One School, One Book program that was scheduled to read Gratz's 2022 best-selling book, Two Degrees. It was canceled. Why? 
Well, because right-wing members of the school board and the community objected to the book's focus on climate change. Yep, we'll talk about his book, Two Degrees, and the controversy. Gratz will be in Kutztown on April 15th for the Kutztown University Children's Literature Conference, and I will be there with my daughter to say hey. <laughs> be awesome. Now, tonight's show, as you know, I can go off in my little D&D world at times, folks, right? Well, tonight you're in for a treat because this is like one of these rare moments where we bring joy and work and politics all in one space. This is like, like dream come true tonight. This week, I welcome Rowan Montgomery to the show. We'll be talking about his recent articles in In These Times about revolt against corporate greed in the tabletop role-playing game community, specifically Dungeons & Dragons, and labor organizing by anime voice actors. Rowan's piece, Slaying the Gold Hungry Dragon, reports on the Dungeons & Dragons community's epic victory against corporate greed. And an anime voice actor speak out, it's not kawaii when we aren't paid. How about that? Everything doesn't work out so well that way. When he dives into the organizing fights by anime voice actors for fair pay and better working conditions. Rowan Montgomery is a journalist and fact checker, and his work has appeared in the BBC, New Republic, and In These Times. Rowan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm, I kid you not when I say this is kind of like the perfect storm for me. Um, bringing together, I played D&D like a, somewhat as a kid, but I was, I was one of those folks that could never find a really good community to play with, right? So it wasn't until college because I really started playing. But now my kids are at the age where they're starting to play and I get to DM for the first time. Um, and then thinking through, especially it's a really cool time to be doing this, especially given all the pressure being brought upon how we talk about race, how we talk about gender, how we talk about these static categories that D&D had, and all fantasy really has had a long history of problematic relationships with. Um, and to see that stuff kind of come to the forefront at a time like this seems to be like, well, what a better time to actually, you know, uh, be engaging with this stuff with my kids. So that's pretty awesome. And the fact that you're bringing this together with political movements and looking at kind of the fights against corporate greed and unionization is just kind of like amazing to me. So thank you for your work. Thank you for supporting it. Um, yeah, and it's it's a really exciting time for the game and the community in general. Um, a dangerous time, but you know, dangerous times are exciting, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It could go yes, and that's that is true, right? Because it could go either way, right? It could go in very very bad uh, bad ways, but it can go in ways that are, are full of possibility. Which again, always comes down right to the the work that's at the center of your writing. So before we kind of dive into your pieces, can you talk a little bit about kind of what brought you to these, you know, both to this specific, you know, coverage of these areas, why you're looking at these campaigns, looking at these events, um, or, you know, uh, this is kind of like a beat to write on to begin with. Yeah, sure. So uh, last year, I was a fact checker at In These Times. And as a fact checker, you kind of dabble in loads of different things, basically, whatever you're told to do, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is fun. Uh, it's like, I don't know, the, the making coffee or buying coffee of the journalist world. Um, and yeah, while I was there, I just came across, um, some tweets as, as you do. Uh, it's like the new, the new journalist investigation. You don't walk the street anymore. You just sit on Twitter, which is easier, but maybe <laughs> a little less mentally fortifying. Um, and anyway, I saw some tweets about how, um, Kyle McCarley, who was the voice of mob in the eponymous mob psycho 100, which I had watched and really enjoyed. Um, he announced that he hadn't been recast as the main character and that sort of set off anime twitter as anime twitter is wont to be set off um, on a little frenzy of sort of people sharing things that had happened to them people saying stuff like oh you know i did the voice for jujutsu kaisen zero which made something insane like i don't know 150 million worldwide 35 million in the u.s alone and these voice actors were saying they got paid 150 dollars not per hour just full stop and i was like that's kind of mental. Um, so I hopped into a call with um, the editors in these times, which is uh, a very labor-based outlet in yep. Chicago. It has a long history of really nailing down on labor fights, strikes, organizing, union busting, all that good stuff. And I was like, hey, um, I know you've been looking for some more sort of culture pieces because as much as I love labor organizing, and as much as I'm sure you love labor organizing, reading the same labor organizing stories can get a bit, ooh, another strike getting broken, another group of workers getting, uh, well, I'll resist using bad Screwed. words, but. Yeah. Shit on, let's do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
So I was like, hey, this could be a really great opportunity to talk about something which no one outside of um, industry uh, publications is talking about. And I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over the fact that places like Anime News Network had been reporting on this, but hadn't gone outside of that. And you know, thus begun several months of speaking to voice actors. And the more I heard, kind of, kind of the same with every labor story. The more you hear, the lower down your jaw drops, like you're in some kind of Looney Tunes cartoon. Your tongue falls out like a red carpet. Um, and it was just insane, the stuff that Crunchyroll um, gets away with and has historically gotten away with. Basically, for two reasons. Firstly, because it started out as like a passion project, which is all well and good, but it kind of bakes in these really bad expectations um, that are fine when it's an informal family run, we're all friends doing this for the love of the game. Um, but once you're a billion dollar company who has basically a near monopoly on one of the fastest growing entertainment markets in the world, it's a little less fun. Um, and that's the second reason why they can get away with it because Crunchyroll basically has a stranglehold on the anime market, especially since, well, this is going into further details in the piece, but safe to say, yeah, they, they're very, very powerful. Well, let's go into that. Let's start with this one then. Cause like, I, I think this is, I mean, this is a fabulous story. Can you take us back a little bit before like Crunchyroll? Like, first of all, I mean, Crunchyroll, that's freaking awesome as a name, right? You know, which you can see, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it's branded in, in its name, right? In terms of what it's trying to capture. And it's also given that kind of tongue in cheek name, one that kind of like speaks to anime, speaks to kind of like culture, to see it be this become this kind of corporate behemoth, which is kind of like literally like sending people to the hospital practically at times, um, given, given what the working conditions were. But can you take us back then uh, before Crunchyroll, right? Because I think what I was really intrigued about in this piece too is that you say, look, for the longest time, anime was just not a thing in the States in particular, right? This was just not something that had um, kind of a lot of legs. And so you had people that were kind of doing voice acting just for the love of it, right? Because they want to do this translation. So can you walk us through a little bit that kind of trajectory? I mean, it doesn't have to be blow by blow, year by year, but how we went from there to what, what happens with Crunchyroll? Yeah, of course. So it's important to note first that obviously anime comes from Japan, has a much longer history in Japan, but that history has involved pretty terrible working conditions since the outset. Um, this is even in Japan where, oh, right there. It's much worse in Japan, uh, worse even than here. Um, and Japan is pretty infamous for having um, bad working conditions. People expected to work hugely long hours for low pay, um, toxic workplaces, um, and anime is no different. Writers, um, animators, um, voice actors. It's well known there that they suffer from pretty bad working conditions. Um, so that's the context as anime is being imported into the States. But yeah, if you think about like the 80s and the 90s, um, it's a very, very niche thing in the US. Um, it's something enjoyed only by a very select few. It has very negative connotations, shall you say, with like compared to popular culture. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's even a stereotype in the same way as Dungeons and Dragons, where if you're known as like a kid who likes anime, or dare I say a weeaboo, which is one of the more previously pejorative terms for someone obsessed with anime, uh, you know, you're going to get bullied for it. And then sort of out of nowhere almost um, in the 2000s, it just becomes cool and everyone's watching it. And even, even sort of since I was in high school, um, like 10 years ago, it's become, even since then, it's become way more acceptable. Everyone watches anime. Mm -hmm. It's the cultural power of anime. People almost don't realize it yet, how insanely huge it is. The market's like, doubling every decade or something insane. And now it's, well, I can't even remember the exact figure, but it's something insane, like 50 billion worldwide. It's just nuts. Um, and that's why Crunchyroll starts as a pirate site. In 2006, I believe, some students uh, in a university in California just set up a pirate site. And that's how many people watched anime. It's how I used to watch anime when I was younger and I couldn't afford to pay for a streaming site. Um, and often streaming sites won't upload um, or won't promptly upload um, shows that have already aired in Japan. So people right. go to pirate sites and get it for free because fans will just translate it themselves. And the translations aren't always great, but you don't know any better, do you? Because, you know, who cares? <laughs> um, and yeah, so 
when I say it starts as like nothing, it really is nothing. It's like a pirate site, that's Crunchyroll. Funimation is, is older, it started more like in the 90s, but that's just some friends set it up. Um, Marin Miller, who's one of the voice actors I spoke to, I mentioned in the piece that they recall visiting the Funimation office around the mid-2000s, and it's literally just a room on the second floor of like a bank building. It's, it's nothing. Nuts. And in the sort of 10 years since then, the 10, 15 years, both of these companies just explode. As, as the anime industry explodes, as everyone in the US starts watching it, um, they, they were there first. So they grow with the industry. And now, to take you up to the modern day, in 2021, um, Funimation, which by this point is owned by Sony, or technically it's owned by Aniplex, which is owned by Sony. Owned by Sony. Right? Ultimately, it it's a, exactly. The, if you unpeel the various layers, it's owned by Sony. They buy Crunchyroll in 2021 for something insane like 1.2 billion, give or take, dollars, US dollars. And there's an antitrust review. They let it happen. Um, and there's some confusion with the branding. Funimation, owned by Sony, buys Crunchyroll, but they rebrand or are in the process of rebranding everything as Crunchyroll. So it's still Crunchyroll, inverted commas, um, but it's now effectively owned by Sony, which, as I'm sure you and everyone knows, is one of the largest companies in the world. Um, and basically, outside of Netflix, which, to be fair, does have a lot of anime content and a lot of good anime content, if you want to watch anime in the US, in English, you basically have to subscribe to Crunchyroll now. Right. That's incredible. I mean, you see that. So it, and what's, what's interesting to me, too, as well, you say it starts in California, but there's this big Texas component. Right. There's this big kind of which is also fascinating to me in this whole in this story, in the sense, Texas is one of the biggest kind of like right to work states. Right. Or, you know, white right to work for less states. Right. Um, Anti-union states kind of in, in the country. So you have this kind of nascent um, voice acting community that's working in anime there. And then so Crunchyroll sets up in Texas, too, as well. Is that is that how that works? Yeah. And. The reason for why they did it is, is exactly as you just said, Texas is a right-to-work state. So the history of, of voice acting is, um, uh, I meant to this in the piece, is in the same way that anime was sort of nothing, even up until the sort of 2000s, same with voice acting. Um, all the voice actors I spoke to said when they were working in the 90s and 2000s, you just forget about it. Uh, the, the unions that represent actors, um, the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA, they don't care about voice actors. It's it's the on-screen Hollywood dream. Voice acting is just something you do if you couldn't hack it and you have to make some money to pay your rent. And it's like doing commercials. It's it's not acting for this obscure foreign animated program for kids, quote unquote, right? Right, exactly. So these communities kind of form by themselves. Obviously in New York, there was a community. In Los Angeles, there was a community, which makes sense. Those were two big hubs. Um, but Funimation actually... Uh, opened his first office in Texas um, pretty early in 1994, I think, um, the exact dates in the piece. So they had a presence in Texas for a while. Um, and Texas also had quite a big uh, community of anime fans. So they kind of grew together. The more fans came to Texas, that meant voice actors would be in Texas. Funimation had its office there. Funimation became one of the biggest producers and distributors of anime. So it all kind of grew very naturally. And then these companies look at Texas and go, oh, in California, New York, we have to jump through all these hoops. We have to go through all these protections. Um, but here in Texas, we don't, <laughs> we don't have to do You don't give a shit about anybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can do whatever the hell we want. And if you don't like it, fuck you. Especially because in Texas, there are no other voice acting opportunities, essentially. You only have what is now Crunchyroll. So if you're an actor who wants to work even just in anime, but in any sort of voice acting, and you're based in Texas, if you piss off Crunchyroll, or more accurately, the people in power at Crunchyroll, they can just give you the middle finger and you'll be effectively out of a job. Dumb. And unless you can afford to move to LA or New York, and there are remote recordings now, it's, like, it's becoming more common, but unless you move to LA or New York, you're kind of screwed. So what are you going to do? You're going to toe the line, right? Right, exactly. And this is also a good, interesting story, too. You got a change that happens within, within uh, you know, the actors' unions, right? When you have kind of the mergers of SAG-AFTRA, 
right? Um, and then suddenly with the kind of growth of this industry, you have, you know, I mean, it's really fascinating to see this where unions start to, to you know, start to pay attention. Um, and, you know, it was interesting. I told you this before before the show is like uh, our union, Abscuff, was on strike at the same time that we had this big sag after strike, especially among voice actors. And w- what was fascinating to see is that some of what you just described there is the, the kind of the cultural kind of divisions within this kind of voice acting community, right? Where you're saying, you know, here, you know, what are you doing voice acting? That's not real acting, right? That's just kind of random what you're doing to pay the bills was like mirrored by what you see in higher education, right? Within the kind of whole adjunctification of the contingency work, contingent, you know, the contingency works workforce. And so, you know, we saw these kind of both parallels here. And one of the things that was interesting, you know, and from our experience, like we were fighting part of what we went to strike over was we were not going to a two, two-tiered uh, faculty system, right? Our adjuncts are paid on scale with, you know, um, with tenure line faculty. I mean, again, it's, I wouldn't say it's complete equity, right? But it's certainly kind of, if you look at when I worked for AFT in, in Washington, D.C. for a while, I was pointed to ABSCUF as kind of like the gold standard for this. And so it was interesting, even then with those discussions uh, with those voice actors, the people who are organizing um, around this, they saw those parallels too as well, right? The difficulty of even being recognized as being worthy of attention by the unions, right? Um, so can you tell a little bit about that story where now SAG-AFTRA starts to kind of pay attention, you have this independent organizing work that's going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So, and to add another thing, uh, is voice actors are essentially in competition with each other, which is just a slight barrier to solidarity. Um, yep. And so, yeah, these voice actors were telling me that they'd go to what was previously SAG and AFTRA, separate. Um, and SAG didn't have a voiceover department. They would have to go to separate departments for each thing they did. If you voiced for a commercial, you'd have to go to the commercials department. If you voiced for, I don't know, a TV series, you'd have to go to the TV series department. It's just a mess. And, you know, people are busy, right? You're trying to live your life. You can't right. be dealing with all this bureaucracy. Um, but uh, the strike you're mentioning happened, uh, the huge video game strike in the, the mid-2010s. I think it's the longest strike in SAG-AFTRA history, yep. um, which by that point they, they unified. And these voice actors, it, it's like a parallel thing. Voice actors in anime, and there's a huge overlap because people voice act for anime and video games. These voice actors see like, hey, what the union's doing is really cool. Why don't they help us? Like this union's really big and powerful and we're kind of getting screwed over a lot. Um, so voice actors went to the union in 2017, I believe, and said, hey, can you help us out? And the union said, hold on, we've, we're dealing with a little thing here, which is the biggest strike in our history. <laughs> Give us a second. Fair enough. And after the strike ended, SAG-AFTRA uh, sent organizers out to the, main, the major communities, including uh, NYC, LA, and Texas. And they did some outreach. They approached some of the major actors who especially the ones who were known for being like pro-union, pro-workers' rights. Um, And then on the basis of what the actors responded, they helped voice actors set up this coalition, um, basically of dubbing actors, CODA. Um, And that that is technically an independent organization. It's a little confusing because it's so interlinked with the union, they're interconnected, they help each other. But it is a separate group which advises the union and pushes the union to basically stand up for voice actors in a way which they historically have not done. Um, and it's great, that it, it's one of those situations where it's really great that the union is now doing well, um, but there are some quotes from voice actors which I don't think made it into the piece, which were kind of like, the union has recognized that they, they dropped the ball and they've let the situation get so bad. So it's great that they're now helping us make it better, but we have to also recognize the fact that there's a reason why over the past 20 years, since the first promulgated contract, uh, things have gone so bad. So it's like bittersweet. But focusing on the positives, everyone had positive things to say about the union. But in Texas, the right to work for less state, um, people are very anti-union. People were scared of the union, and people have also associated CODA with the union and are now scared of CODA as well. And one thing that voice actors keep saying is, not to blame individual voice actors. It's not their fault because especially in the situation in Texas, as I described, it's, it's look, these people want to earn a living, right? They want to pay their bills. They want to support their families. So if they've been raised and fed a bunch of propaganda about how unions are going to take your jobs and move them to LA where better voice actors are, quote unquote, where more competitive voice actors are, quote unquote, of course they're going to be anti-union. Of course they're going to be suspicious and wary and scared when a union organizer or a code organizer comes up to them 
and starts feeding them what they think are lies, basically. I thought it was fascinating to see that they were kind of getting out in front on that too as well and kind of recognizing, look, we can't go after our own. We have to recognize different conditions in different spaces. Um, and because that, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult community, I would imagine, to keep together um, precisely for the reasons you're talking about. And especially since um, my understanding, I mean, you'll know better than I do, obviously, is that most of this is contract work, right? I mean, most of this is kind of like per gig as opposed to, you know, you're not hired by a company to do all their voice acting, you know, voice acting. You're you're auditioning for pieces kind of right along the ways in order to get those parts so that you have zero job stability well probably next to Nero's job you know stability um going forward even as you mentioned right up right at the onset is you've got kind of like a, a star right in the voice acting community who's just kind of ditched right when uh becomes associated with any kind of you know pushing back or pressure back or they just wanted to cut their costs who the hell knows it's that permanent instability that's the marker of so much gig and freelance work uh more and more these days. Um, and, you know, paraphrasing what these voice actors told me is it's basically permanent unemployment. You have a gig and then you're unemployed again and you have to get a job again. And, you know, almost everyone knows how stressful and difficult it is to find a job. So to do that again and again and again and again and to be competing against the very people that you're supposed to be uh, fermenting solidarity with just makes it all the more difficult. Um, you lose enough gigs to another voice actor and you have to then sit down with them in a meeting and, you know, chat shit, like it's, right. it's difficult, especially <laughs> yep. when, um, when you're at the mercy of these directors and producers, especially in Texas, who, if you're not pally with them, if they don't like you, you know, are they going to accept your audition? Auditioning is already a very vulnerable process. You're putting yourself out there. And if you have some asshole who, you know, doesn't like the way you look or sound, or you made a bad joke at a party, or they hear that you talked about the union, uh, yeah, good luck. Yep, that just might make its way and drop it into a random conversation before the, their audition, right? About, oh, that guy, oh, you guys are auditioning the union guy? Oh, oh uh, you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing. I could totally see that. And this didn't make it into the piece because it's essentially just rumors. But, you know, people, people have been saying that if you're known as a voice actor who has spoken with the union, or if you're known as a voice actor who's associated with CODA, then people in Crunchyroll are going to take a pretty negative light, uh, a view of you um, and they're going to treat you differently. And by differently, I mean, they're not going to cast you. Yeah. As much as that's rumors, I'm sure it's a hundred percent true. I mean, it's just, I mean, this is a, you know, that's out of the standard playbook of any kind of anti-union campaign. That's your kind of like one Oh one of anti-union activity, right? I mean, it's, you know, this is uh, you go back to what you're saying. You, you, when you cover labor long enough, you, you know the playbook. And so you know what's going on, even though there's not the paper trail that's, you know, the playbook that's out there saying, well, sometimes there is, but that's saying, you know, this is what we're doing. No, they, this is just how they operate, right? Um, these folks, especially when you're talking about, you know, one of the largest, you know, tech entertainment industries or, or companies on the face of the planet right now. Yep. And, you know, when they don't have the pressure of government, you know, telling them what's what or punishing them, then of course they're going to do whatever they want to cut costs. And as we said, in Texas, if, if the people in Crunchyroll in power get the wrong idea of you, then you're screwed. At least in LA, people like Kyle, uh, he even said himself, he has the privilege to be able to turn down jobs because he has enough work. Um, and he's part of the union and he has, you know, he makes his healthcare and Etc. Etc. But people in Texas just don't have this luxury, especially if they're trying to get into the industry and trying to break into what is a very, very competitive industry. Uh, it's just so difficult. So, where do you see these things? Things at this point now are they do this? Do they see this? Folks that are kind of involved with uh, with Coda, folks that are kind of involved with some of the organizing, do they see this as kind of like at an upswing moment? Right where they're kind of seeing organizing going on, or is this just the kind of the the, the day by day fight? of uh, trying to uh, figure out a strategy for um, effective organizing? Unfortunately, it's more the latter. It's more of the grind right now. A lot of people I spoke to, the, the common theme was this, this frustration with not knowing how to break through what is essentially a deadlock, where if you don't have the community in Texas on your side, you can't really do anything akin to a strike. Not that they're planning it, I want to make that clear, but you couldn't do it even if they wanted to because there's just no, there's no interconnection between the various voice acting communities and Texas is kind of very separate. Um, so that's not really on the table. Um, 
But then also it's like Crunchyroll clearly isn't even willing to have a conversation right. because to be clear, that's all Kyle asked for, literally a conversation. He didn't, they didn't have to promise anything. They just had to talk and they wouldn't even do that. Um, so it's clear that they're kind of really drawing a line in the sand and they're sort of freaking out about this whole slippery slope of if they even open the door to a conversation, then everything's going to come tumbling down, which let's hope it does. But they're sort of pulling up the drawbridge and, and hoping to God that they can weather the storm. Yeah. Now, this is this is one of the reasons why I thought, you know, for talking about both of your articles here was uh, kind of interesting seeing these paired together, because what we get, I mean, I don't want to jump there quite yet to the um, stuff on Dungeons and Dragons, but um, and, and the, the other model, we see the community uprising, right? We see a community around this that are fans of this that are kind of integrated in a very different way than they are in the anime. So I don't want to kind of like, you know, make these two kind of same cold like these are identical cultures or something like this because it's not but there's overlap there there's kind of you know um that my point being is that you know once we get the names of things out once people start looking at Crunchyroll in a little bit of a different way um and start thinking about this in terms of the actors that are behind this right the labor conditions that are behind there so like jl just commented right just right now from he's like, from the monopoly that Crunchyroll holds over the industry to the instability for voice actors i never knew this is fascinating stuff love the article rowan and thanks for the pod kevin right and i think this is that's kind of like an indicator to me, right? Because people aren't necessarily clued in to seeing those things together, right? Um, but, you know, you got to say, for the same reasons that we see the rise in um, the popularity of D&D, the rise in the, like, the number of anime fans, like my, my daughter especially being one of them, right? There's some power there, too, as well, when you start thinking about the community, uh, what they can do in terms of support of these, uh, you know, of these workers. So I think it's definitely something um, to be interesting to see what kind of connections are going to happen there going forward, because I, I have no doubt that they will. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, D&D uh, perversely benefits, in a way, from being slightly smaller than anime and only really having one target, uh, which is Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro. Whereas animates a bit more dispersed, so right. people people know of Crunchyroll, but you know maybe you only watch Netflix. People know Mob Psycho, but there's thousands of other shows you can watch. There's hundreds of other voice actors, um, and yes, they're all being affected, but it's so dispersed, um, it's so disintegrated. Uh, whereas the D and D story, maybe the difference is that it really was the amazing thing about it is how coalesced it was. Um, My how God, it's incredible. It yeah, so let me let me say this. Let me kind of start the conversation on D and D about this. I want to kind of read a, um, a, a short paragraph from your piece because I think this sets this up nicely to type out what this was and where it's going. And you you talk to this one guy. I think his name is Steve Miller. Mm -hmm. um, is that right? Um, and not the Stephen Miller from the Trump administration, by the way. Just want to make everything very clear there. Um, but um, you say, so here's what you write. So the brilliance of D&D &D and a big reason for its um, immense popularity is its openness to being shaped by players. A set of source books provide basic D&D &D rules, but anyone can use those rules to create their own adventure or even create new source books with modified rules. Quote, D&D &D has always been about your imagination, says Miller, calling the game a, quote, open community of people who collaborate to make things. As D&D grew into a cultural phenomenon, so did the ambitions of its corporate owners. So, I mean, I think one, seeing that coming, that sense of what this meant to the community, right? Um, and again, like you said, for a long time was a relatively small community, right? Fairly tight-knit community, um, but that exploded, right, over the past several years. And I don't think, you know, and again, Again, I'm always, I've always, I know that anytime when I start mentioning D&D &D to like people, right? A lot of them are like, oh, nerd time, <laughs> geek time, and kind of click off, right? But I think it's the same thing with, with, with anime to begin thinking about this as like a site of corporate kind of accumulation in power and a struggle over this as you do in this piece, just like with the anime looking at this from the perspective of labor. So can you tell us a little bit, you mentioned this already, is that so... Dungeons and Dragons, right, starts from the company that owns it is Wizards of the Coast, which is then owned by Hasbro. Can you kind of talk a little bit about, like, that kind of almost idealistic version of the game that came out from players that you mentioned there? And what kind of got us to this point of controversy? What happened within D&D &D to see the growth? And then maybe um, folks over in Hasbro licking their lips over kind of potential uh, massive accumulations, as you say, the uh, gold hungry dragon. Yeah, of course. So 
It's in the late 90s that Wizards of the Coast buys D&D. And two years after they buy it, Hasbro buys Wizards of the Coast. And in 2000, uh, Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro slash D&D publishes what's called the Open Game License. And that's basically a text which describes how you as a player, as a creator, can use um, essentially the rules of D&D um, to do basically whatever you want with some limitations. Like you can't just take a story that Hasbro published and resell it. You can't take a specific, like you can't be ridiculous, but it's, it's really a very, very cool open document and people go wild. And anyone who's played D&D or watched people play D&D um, knows that it's just so much, it is, you are the one who makes the game. It's a platform for you to do what you want. It just makes it easy for your imagination to go wild. So obviously people go crazy and, you know, people make items, people write their own stories for others to play. Some people even create their own games using like uh, the, the basic language of D&D. Um, Just got this in the mail today from Cobalt <laughs> Press, right? Working on their black flags, flag stuff. <laughs> right? It's, it's, just, it's just endless. And what these people are is they're essentially free labor for Wizards of the Coast because let's say you're just some person and your friend says, hey, I, do you want to play the game you just mentioned? And you play it with them and you have a great time. If you then Google Dungeons and Dragons, you're going to find Wizards of the Coast and you're going to buy their basic sets of games. You're going to buy their stories because they're essentially the center of what's a growing community. So over sort of 20 years from, from 2000, D&D is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger. Um, more and more content is being created, much fit by third parties. And then the pandemic hits and D&D explodes because one of the greatest things about role-playing with your imagination is you don't have to do anything on the table. It can all be online, basically. Yeah. And so all these people are stuck at home with shit all to do. So they hop onto Zoom, they hop onto Discord, and they start playing D&D. I, I did that with, with my friends. I hadn't played, God, I think I only played like once before, and then when the pandemic hit, I was like, well, why not? I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> and so D&D explodes. And with it, Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro starts sees this like, huge growth. But obviously... Endless growth isn't sustainable. Economists everywhere, minds explode. Um, right, right, and, exactly. <laughs> so the pandemic ends and less people play D&D. Less people purchase D&D products. And the majority of people who are purchasing D&D products, by the way, are the dungeon masters who run the games. So in reality, even though the community has grown, it's actually only a small percentage of the community that are like monetizable. Um, so then Hasbro's stock starts falling. And that's, that's bad because if the line is red and it's going down, then you're not doing your job as a sort of corporate, a corporate, well, anyway, a corporate person. Right. And of course, this was not something that you could kind of foresee coming in the future or predictable at all because you're in a pandemic and then you won't be in a pandemic. So, of course, that wouldn't make sense that things which I mean, whatever. I mean, this is the, the classic phenomenon, which they use kind of like this, you know, unbridled quote unquote, as you said, kind of this growth, and they think that model's gonna work forever when you know it's gonna come back down and then they kind of resort to austerity measures or clamping down and pretend that you know it's a force of nature. But really what they were just doing was we're reaping the profits for a short-term gain. Exactly, and it's the same problem Netflix is facing now, right? That they're unable to grow for reasons that are essentially out of their control, but because as corporate leaders, they have to provide growth to their shareholders. They're now scrambling to find any sort of way to maintain what is essentially growth that's impossible while maintaining the quality of your product. So basically in 20, 2022, I think, um, Wizards of the Coast has a shareholders meeting where I can't remember exactly who, I think it was the CEO of Wizards of the Coast, describes Dungeons & Dragons as quote unquote under monetized. Um, so as you said, you can see them sort of licking their lips, rubbing their hands together because they've essentially got an extremely in demand, extremely fast growing, um, product, which they feel they can sort of squeeze some more money from. And they're freaking out because a recession is coming supposedly, um, their stock is declining, you know, oh shit, we've got to do something or, you know, we're not going to have earned our six figure payments or whatever. Right. 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 And as an aside, I think, um, I can't remember the exact name, but one of the, one of the largest individual shareholders in Hasbro, um, has tried to change the leadership, um, at least once, uh, in recent history. And they've gone on record as saying that 
Hasbro's leadership is, it totally lacks direction. They have more corporate payouts than like Apple or something insane. I I mean, look, Hasbro is big, but they're not Apple. (laughs) Um, So, and this is the same thing that all these third-party creators say is there's just this money-hungry culture uh, high up in Hasbro when really people at Whistle of the Coast are doing it for the love of the game. It's a job, but there are a lot of passionate and really talented and intelligent and great people there. So what happens is some of these talented um, and passionate people start hinting to third-party creators um, as early as uh, 2021, I think, late 2021, that there are, some, there are some changes afoot. There are some alarm bells ringing that the OGL uh, is in danger. But basically no one, no one believed that it would be totally struck down because it described itself as a perpetual agreement. Can you legally deauthorize a perpetual agreement? Kind of tricky, right? So mm-hmm. eventually, long story short, uh, January 4th, I believe, um, a source leaks a draft of a new game license to Linda Kodega, who's an amazing journalist at io9. That was a uh, great slash- story too. That was an amazing story. Yeah, they've done some really amazing reporting. And if you want like super in-depth details, check it out. It's, it's linked in my piece. Um, and basically, the new game license is a total shit show. It deauthorizes the old one. Creators have to report all their earnings. They have to like log everything they create. When they create stuff, they have to like obsessively footnote everything. And these third-party creators are talking to me. They're like, we're not, we're not rich. We're just sort of people who are doing this. Like we're making a living, but you, you sort of go on Kickstarter and you raise enough money to make your product. If we have to spend however many more hours going through and adding, like this isn't an academic essay, right? This is meant to be fun for people to read. They don't want to be paging through footnotes and different colored fonts was another thing Hasbro suggested to like delineate different types of content. And sort of the real thing beyond all the money was these people are like, you know, what the hell? We've spent 20 years essentially growing your IP for free. Okay, we we made a bit of money doing it, but that's because we did the work, right? I mean, talk about the means of production. And you've basically sat there and gone, oh, that's that's great work you've made over 20 years. We're now going to take all of it and own it. And the, almost the worst thing was you wouldn't be allowed to produce content under the old OGL. It was deauthorized despite being perpetual, right? So all of the work you've made over 20 years, and there are companies who've been doing this for 20 years, right? There are people who've been making stuff for 20 years for the love of the game. All of that is now owned by Hasbro slash Wizards of the Coast, and they can do whatever they want with it. It's... It's unbelievable. And then the kicker on top of all that, as you put it here, right, it says in that document, right, they would claim rights to everything that you made forever. Yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah, it's just, it's almost, it's almost, uh, it was almost a benefit how ridiculous it was. So one of the people I spoke to um, even said this. They were like, okay, look, if Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro had said, hey, guys, you know, we've had a great time over 20 years, but, you know, we need to make some money, so we're going to put a sort of 2% tithe on everything you make, 2% tax. You know, people would have been annoyed, but, like, ah, it's, 2%, it's 2%. It's fair. We've kind of... They've been very generous with their IP for a long time. Fine. But it was just so ridiculous. 25% of all earnings over 750000 I mean, I spoke to creators who were like, look, you can, you can make a Kickstarter and earn, you know, 800,000. And then with the tax, you'll be losing money you, because it's based on revenue. So people are like, okay, first of all, we're not paying you 20, 25%. We won't make any money doing this anymore. And we can't even do it, even if it wasn't motivated by profit. We, we're not going to do it for the love of the game because we're not going to own what we've created anymore. You're just going to take it and make even more money by licensing it yourself. So, I mean, what the hell? So then, obviously, people are freaking out. And Wizards of the Coast does potentially the stupidest thing and doesn't say anything um, while everyone's freaking out. And um, some of the biggest third-party creators, like the creator of um, Pathfinder, which is one of the biggest alternative uh, game systems, they come out and say that they're basically going to try and move away from the OGL um, and Wizards of the Coast content altogether. 
Well, the crazy um, thing, too, is in Pathfinder, right, was formed by people that were from Wizards of the Coast that bolted from the company the last time they tried to do this kind of nonsense, mm -hmm. right? Even changed the OGL kind of initially back kind of back in the day. And it's like, and so that's where that's where Pathfinder came from, right? <laughs> and so you think at the, there's I mean, zero historical memory here, too, as well. But yeah, I mean, you're exactly so, okay, you know, screw it. Then we're just going to develop our own systems. And now you've got an entire community that's looking for some place to bolt to. <laughs> And they recognize that. I mean, this, like uh, uh, Noah Downs, who's a, who's a really intelligent lawyer who I spoke to, who works a, with a lot of D&D creators, he said is that it's, there's no chance that Hasbro didn't sit down with their own legal team and discuss the kickback that they were going to get. And as we said before um, we started recording, they had corporate arrogance, right? They thought, yeah, some people are going to complain, but we'll wait it out. And they even tried to do some sneaky shit. They, uh, they were approaching creators individually. Yep. Uh, sometimes under NDAs, to try and get them to sign on to... Some people suggested that the biggest creators were getting some sweet kickback deals, but I, I don't know if that's confirmed. But, you know, they, they, they went about it sneakily. It got leaked, because like you said, there are people in Wizards of the Coast who are genuinely passionate about the game. More of them came forward over the following week since the leak. The community freaked out. They tried to do some damage control. It wasn't good enough. And I think they basically realized, like, holy shit, we have really screwed up here the only thing we, we we've got to like save this however we can so they dumped it all on the creative commons yep. and that's great um but you know why did we have to get to that point anyway uh that's what the community is saying it's like it's fantastic that they've done this we never would have expected them to do this um they can't take it back which is good but everyone's wary now right because what if they try and do it in the future like you said historical memory is not known for being long in any corporation and you know, especially not at Hasbro. So let's organize together to prevent yeah, it I'm happening in the future. 100%. And with now, right now, you have, like like I said, with, you know, Cobalt Press, you have them with their kind of the Black Flag, Flag Initiative, which they're going to start with kind of completely open and kind of available for everyone on the model of what, you know, what the open game license was. You see same thing happening with Pathfinder, right? You have Critical Role, right? Which basically you might as well say, I mean, Critical Role was what, launched right all the tabletop role-playing game on kind of online to viewers like people like me right um I mean, without critical role i mean somebody else would have come right but i mean critical role was was that they laid laid all the stuff out and critical roles like yeah we're kind of we're working on our own system now because this is kind of messed up you know when even critical role who is you know very careful right about protecting their own brand and very careful about not wanting to piss off wizards of the coast too much even then when they start kind of coming out and kind of hinting that they're developing their own system and the response to this i mean i could imagine at this point hasbro is just like oh crap we're not just going to lose our like our revenues here we're going to lose the gate we're going to lose everything right because you have a community that's you know and again i don't know how realistic that is but i mean you have a community that that's kind of intent. If we don't do something really serious here, then we don't do something, we're just going to have to do it. And it almost felt like this was kind of like a, just a, a, a kind of reaction, right? Okay, shit, no, it's all yours. <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. There was, some, there was some serious blood vessels being burst, I bet, in some boardrooms over that week. I mean, just, yeah, just the, the chutzpah, you know, the greed, to, the arrogance to think that they could get away with this. It's almost, it, again, it almost benefited the community. Obviously, it wasn't good that it happened, but one, one source I spoke to even said that, like, before this whole thing, people had spoken about maybe creating an association, sort of get third-party creators talking to each other and working together to sort of improve their conditions. But people are like, why, you know, why bother? Everything's fine. But this was seriously, like, if you really, you know, if you wanted to do one thing to, to make people join together, it was this, right? It was doing the stupidest thing they could have done. Uh, they bit off way more than they can chew. And yeah, even though, even though they've done some really impressive damage control um, by corporate standards, it's too late. Yeah, the can of worms has opened. Um, creators are in the process of forming an organization. What, what one of them said, what I legally cannot call a union. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're forming an association so that if Hasbro, or maybe I should say when Hasbro, attempts to reverse the decline in their stock prices again in the future by doing something similarly stupid, uh, there'll be more procedures in place or there'll be more of an institution in place uh, to stop that. Because when you don't have an institution, like with anime workers in Texas, it's way more difficult. Yeah, I would love to see a kind of uh, a, a union come out of this, right? And I'd love to see even 
even, I mean, the community is already pretty tight, but to see even the community organizing around this uh, as well, um, kind of like I was mentioning with the anime community, so where it's just kind of like still kind of scattered all the way, not as concentrated as we see with, with D&D, um, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, GL, uh, JL also says, corporate greed attempting to seize the fruits of people's love for the game, disappointing but not surprising anymore. Talk about shooting yourself in the foot, too. Glad there was so much kickback. And then uh, Obed Rios Ruiz says, honestly, I am shocked by all this information. Um, once again, reason why I wanted you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the common theme in everyone I've spoken to about this is they're kind of like, oh, D&D, yeah, I know what that is. And then you, talk, you tell them more and more and more. And they're like, what the hell? Right. And suddenly it goes from like, you know, kind of suburban white kids in a basement to like, holy crap, you're talking mega corporate greed and kind of organizing, right, um, to maintain something that is kind of, you know, a collective phenomenon in many ways. Um, it's so cool. And, you know, this goes back to something that you mentioned around anime. And this is one of the things I always wonder is that, you know, uh, or even not just anime, but we said how you got into this and in these times right, right from the get go is, you know, I think that the kind of creative labor organizing that we're seeing now, the kind of where we are talking about Starbucks unions, we're talking about what we saw in kind of at Amazon, what we see happening, um, especially as kind of young workers begin to organize and they're not kind of weighed down by, you know, look, I mean, I'm, I bleed union. This is what I say all the time, right? <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a union family, right? I, there's no way you can drag me away from the union, but I also know what that means, you know, and this is why, you know, I've always been kind of like a subscriber in these times, always been a subscriber to labor notes, right? Because you know, that any kind of bureaucracy, any kind of institution is going to have things that it sees and things that it doesn't see, things that it privileges, things that it doesn't privilege. And what I see right now with the organizing, you know, happy, like I said, with Starbucks workers and Amazon, Amazon it's starting to change the way we begin to see labor. And I see what's happening in these cultural spaces, right, which are usually kind of set off into like, you know, these gamers that are over here or these kind of anime actors over here starting to kind of, you know, especially since these are corporate megaloths, you know, I mean, once you start to see them in that sense, in that sense, you got to say the question, okay, how do we maintain this? How do we kind of care for those things that we love? How do we actually create a space where, you know, we're going to kind of, you know, rip this back from their greedy little paws, <laughs> if they put it like that. Exactly. And it's one of the most important questions of right now, because the post Reagan decline in unionism and labor organization and, and labor power has just done untold damage um, to so many people's lives and if you know part of the solution to that part of the kickback to that can come from online organizing and exposing the, the sort of grubby underhand dealings of these mega corporations these behemoths then that's great yeah, fantastic. Well, listen, Rowan, I kept you kept you longer than I promised to keep you, but I mean, I like I said, I just I love your work. I'm so glad you're doing this work. I'm so glad to see it in in these times, especially because it's bringing together those. I mean, like like you said, as amazing as we saw some of the reporting that was happening um, over the, what happened in anime and D and D, a lot of that was kind of niche publishing that like you know was consumed by people, not for the broader public. To see this being brought into the labor space, right, and into the kind of movement space is absolutely fantastic. Um, so I appreciate all your reporting, and uh, I can't wait to see what else you got coming down the pike. That means a lot. And, hey, time flies when you're having fun, right? Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, everybody, uh, all the information on how you can get access uh, to Rowan Montgomery's work is in tonight's show notes. Make sure you go give them a read if you haven't already. Um, we got kind of clicks um, for to follow him on Twitter. Make sure you're going to follow him on Twitter. It's uh, Rowan Montoro. Did I get that right? Montoro mm -hmm. on Twitter. Right. Again, links for that in tonight's show notes. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. Make sure you read his stuff and share it widely. And, uh, you know, I hope you take that the questions posed by these pieces and what's happening in these kind of cold, quote unquote cultural spaces to heart um, and kind of, you know, protect and organize around those things that you love. So thanks again, Rowan, for coming on tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everybody, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we're just about out of here. Uh, remember, we're off next week. Um, but then next week, we'll be, or then on March 20th, we'll be back with Alan Gratz. Yep, we'll be talking about his book, Two Degrees, and why it gets banned over in Kutztown. See ya! I'm